Are you looking for a podcast today? With more anthology and humor you crave Well, I know all these guys and it's birds they like It's Dirty Bird Yeah, they're just a couple guys Who really like birds It's Dirty Bird Yeah, they're pretty dirty But they really like birds Hello, and welcome to Dirty Bird Podcast. Today, I have the privilege to interview Dr. Jen Riley, veterinarian and director of veterinary services at Blue Ridge Wildlife Center in Boyce, Virginia. Welcome to Dirty Bird Podcast. Thanks. So uh, today with Dr. Jen Riley, I'll kind of be talking about uh, the birds she takes care of and the amazing medical care that she gives them. In our previous episode, I interviewed Jessica Anderson, the Wildlife Rehabilitation Coordinator um, at Blue Ridge Wildlife Center. Definitely check out that um, episode to learn more about Blue Ridge Wildlife Center and the work that she does there and the, and the work that the center does. But I'm really excited today to dive into the dirty details of medical care for birds. And Today, I have the perfect guest for this. So Dr. Jen Riley, would you mind introducing yourself and kind of talking about your career? Sure. So um, I, I started out interested in veterinary medicine from a pretty young age, since about 1993 when Jurassic Park came out, I decided that I wanted to be a dinosaur vet. Um, and unfortunately, that never really happened for me but birds are kind of the, the only extant dinosaurs, right? So I ended up as close to my childhood dream as one could, I guess. I always think that all the time when I'm looking, especially like turkeys or something like that. I'm like, this is a freaking dinosaur. Like all the raptors that we see, all that kind of stuff. So, so I definitely, I, I've always loved birds, but I actually, when I went to vet school, I went to um, Cornell University for undergraduate studies. And then I went to Tufts for veterinary school. Um, and there I kind of, gained additional interest in other kind of wild species. I was really into primates for a while, and that led me to my first job uh, after school. I did a, an internship at the Belize Wildlife and Referral Clinic in Belize, in Central wow. America, and that was primarily so that I could work with primates. And while I was there, my intern at the time was bird obsessed. And so we got to do some <laughs> really cool birding in Belize, and I got to see a lot of really interesting cases at that hospital as well. Um, it was mostly like hit by car macaws instead of hit by car raptors, but it's all pretty much the same thing, <laughs> with different species in those areas. Um, and then my second internship, so there's not really a specialty for the type of wildlife medicine that we do. So instead of doing an internship and residency like you normally would, I ended up doing two internships and a fellowship. So my second internship was at Crow, the Clinic for the Rehabilitation of Wildlife in Southwest Florida. So I got a lot of water bird experience, um, different things than we see in Virginia for sure. And then just after that, I did a zoo fellowship at Lion Country Safari in West Palm, Florida. So that was kind of to get everything else on board. So I got to see, you know, different bird species, but also large hoofstock and, and other animals. So it was a, a more broad experience there. And then after that, I ended up here. So since 2016, I've been the director of veterinary services here at Blue Ridge Wildlife Center. Wow. So you've been kind of all over the eastern uh, part of the U.S. and then down into uh, South and Central America and everything. That's that's incredible. I I really like you talking about kind of birding, getting into it with like dinosaurs and stuff. Because uh, <laughs> Jessica and I were talking about this in the last episode about just kind of the 
coincidental things that got us into birding. Um, Cause I, I always thought of it as something for old people, you know, when I was growing up and stuff. And, uh, and then I kind of clicked one day that, no, these are, these are real true living, like dino, they're amazing creatures that have adapted over millions and millions of years. And yes, every animal is like that, but I don't know. They're just very special in my yeah, heart. I'm always surprised that little kids who love dinosaurs aren't immediately into birding. So I think there's an untapped market in birding there for sure to get kids more involved. I definitely do. And one of the reasons why I started this podcast is to try to get um, younger people like, you know, my age, 20s um, uh, and 30s um, starting to get into birds because I feel like there's so many people, you know, 40s, 50s up. Um, and so maybe once we conquer that market, maybe I can start extending it to, the, <laughs> to right. younger. Going younger. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, that sounds like a, an amazing career. Um, and so coming to the Blue Ridge Wildlife Center, is that kind of your first time in Virginia? Yeah, so I, I did a little bit of research here when I was in vet school, um, a shorter kind of stay for a project I was doing, but I've never lived here before. I'm not from here or anything. I'm originally from New Jersey. So it was my first time living in Virginia, and I, I pretty much just moved here for the job. So awesome. that's why and I ended up here. Yeah. And um, how are you liking the, the, you know, all the species that you see, not just birds, but all the species that you uh, encounter in Virginia? I love all of it. We, we do a lot of, um, about 50% of what we see is actually mammals and about 45% oh. I think are birds and the rest are reptiles and amphibians. So I actually, I really like the birds. I really like the reptiles and the amphibians, the mammals, you know, they're, they're interesting, but it's kind of more similar to, to dog and cat medicine when you're doing you know, basic things, the types of diseases they get, the way you repair their fractures, things like that are more similar to small animal companion medicine. Um, although obviously treating them is, is very different uh, because of their behaviors. Right. Uh, the, right. the birds and the, the reptiles and amphibians are some of my favorite. Awesome. That's, that's great to hear. <laughs> um, uh, do you mind kind of telling some of your favorite uh, bird medicine stories that stick out in your mind? So I guess the ones that stick out most are, are the lead cases and that's just because of, of how upsetting they are, I guess. We see these guys come in with lead poisoning, and it's, it's usually the same species over and over because it's our scavengers. So it's oh. our bald eagles and vultures. And we actually, when I started here in 2016, we started testing every scavenger for lead. So that really? was one of those things that, you know, it's, it's an in-house test. It's relatively cheap per test. But we decided it was worth doing on every single animal just because we were getting such high values for so many of them. So with our bald eagles and our vultures, over 80% of them have lead. And um, I'm sure you know, being a medical student, that's, that's not a normal thing to have in your blood. Yeah. Nobody should ever have any lead in their blood. But our scavengers have pretty outrageous levels here. So wow. we do get a lot of those cases in. And typically, they, not typically, I guess the, the minority of cases, about 10 to 15% have lead still in their GI when they come in. And those are usually the ones that are really high and they're still breaking it down. So in those cases, they're, they're always interesting because they're surgical cases. There's lots of diagnostics involved. Um, these guys, especially the bigger ones, the eagles and vultures, uh, end up costing $1,000 in the first week alone um, just to, to get those diagnostics, to get the radiographs, to do the surgeries, to remove the lead to chelate the lead, all of that stuff just is, is really time consuming and, and expensive. And unfortunately, you know, even though you can bring those lead levels down because of the damage they already caused, usually organ failure, um, often the lungs, heart, kidneys are affected. Mm -hmm. So once those things happen, even if you bring down the lead levels, it's already too late. So these guys are, they're really labor intensive. They're usually kind of staff only patients, we call them um, because they are so intensive. 
And they're definitely the ones that always kind of stick out to me because, you know, if people just wouldn't use lead, we'd have a, a much easier time with these cases. Or fewer and, of them. and so these are all from directly hunters using lead bullets and then the uh, scavengers are consuming the meat that has the lead bullets in it. Is that correct? Right. So it's not necessarily just hunters. I hate to, to say it's a hunter problem necessarily. There's also, you know, people shooting nuisance wildlife with lead ammunition, but it, it's ammunition related, I guess is the best way to say it. Gotcha. The overwhelming majority. So there are other things that have lead. There's lead sinkers um, that people use for fishing sometimes. And if you, you know, when we deal with fish eaters, so we've had snapping turtles, for example, positive for lead that have eaten fish that had hooks in them that had uh -huh. lead sinkers on them. Um, so certainly ammunition is not the only thing, but it's the overwhelming majority of what we see in the stomachs of these scavengers. And it's what makes sense, right? So if, if if you have lead that's covered in meat, that's what's going to be eaten more often than, you know, people will say, oh, he probably just ate a car battery. Very few raptors are going to eat a car battery willingly, but they'll eat deer meat that's laced with lead, you know? So that's, that's how they end up getting those high levels. And when you use ammunition that's not lead-based, those kind of things, the bullets tend to stay together. So when you have copper ammunition, they don't fragment the way that lead does. So those stay as one chunk, they can pass through as one piece, or they can be brought back up as one piece. But the lead has such tiny little fragments that actually come off the initial bullet, and they've been found up to 18 inches from the initial wound channel. So even if hunters are removing that bullet, it still ends up really far from that initial entry site. Mm. And that's how these guys get these little tiny pieces. And, and it only needs to be the size of a grain of rice to actually kill an eagle or something that size. Oh my so gosh. It's a very small amount. You really don't need much of it. Um, and it causes really lethal results. So um, it's partially from not burying gut piles. People will leave gut piles as they field dress deer, things like that. And those gut piles will have these tiny fragments in it. Um, so lots of, lots of problems going on with that. But the main issue is just having this lead-containing ammunition at all. Um, and it's not just the, the straight lead ammunition. It's also copper-jacketed lead ammunition. So there's lead even in things that sound nicer, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so it really needs to have no lead in it at all. And I think everybody agrees that, you know, lead is, it's a one health issue. It's something that impacts humans and animals. And, and it's something that none of us really want in the environment for everybody's benefit. Yeah, definitely. And it, it sounds like you gave some good solutions to that, you know, use the right kind of ammunition. Yeah, make sure your tackle box, you, you're not using lead in that. Um, and uh, yeah, bury, bury your gut piles. Um, and I, I just want to, I talked about this with Jessica too. It's not like we're anti-legal hunting or anything. It's just, let's be smart and, you know, protect these animals because we're not going to be able to sustainably hunt or fish if, if you know, we're, we're killing them. Exactly. And, and the problem is too, a lot of, there's a lot of misinformation spread around. There's, you know, hunters have rumors that there's, they're less effective than the lead bullets. And, you know, the actual peer reviewed science tells us otherwise. We've shown that copper ammunition is just as reliable in killing. Um, and it's also become unfortunately a political issue where I really don't think there's any need for it to be political. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's kind of a guns rights issue. So people who are giving in to not using lead are somehow anti-gun and, and not for guns rights and anti-Second Amendment and all of that, where it's just really not a political issue. This is just about keeping us all safe and healthy. 
Yeah, yeah. And um, I, I experienced this in uh, pediatric rotations where almost every single kid we, you know, do a lead level on. Because, um, of course, you know, there's, um, uh, you know, the classic is the lead paint, um, them getting exposed to that. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, kids will eat things that are just laying around. And, you know, that lead bullet might look like a little piece of candy to a kid. So, yeah, let's just remove that from the, the market completely. Yeah, my best friend's <laughs> actually a pediatrician. And that's one of those things that has always frustrated me with the lead test in children is that they're only done on these really young children. Um, a lot of states have like requirements if they're under two years old or something like that, they want it lead test in children. And those are usually children that aren't eating meat. They're not eating venison, you know, they're, they're getting their lead exposure from the paint and from toys and from things they're putting in their mouths. But then when those children turn five, six, seven and start eating hunted game meat, they're not getting tested anymore. So there's a lot of, of good studies looking at people who are eating venison, eating, you know, meat shot with lead and seeing those levels spike in those individuals that are eating it. So I wish there was more uniform testing of children as they got older to kind of, you know, for those at-risk kids at least who are eating that meat. Wow. So look at this. Through saving birds, we're also saving babies. Like it's, it really is full circle. And, and you know, too, about, you know, development, gestation, these, these guys are most sensitive during that time. So pregnant mothers that are eating it is obviously a horrible issue for, mm -hmm. for fetuses that are growing. So yeah, we like to think we're, we're saving babies and animals at the same time. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, uh, would you mind talking about kind of what a typical like bird, uh, I know every case is different, but like a typical an injured bird comes in, what is like the typical medical protocol you use? What are some of the medications you use, some of the typical treatments or surgeries? Sure. So um, it, it totally depends on the species, I guess. So I'll say a typical raptor, if that's an okay place to start. Um, a lot of our raptors come in as hit by car patients. So for example, today we had a barred owl come in that was found on the road last night. They didn't actually witness it. So in this case, we don't call it a hit by car. We call it an unknown trauma and a suspected hit by car. So it's always good to get as much history as you can. Sometimes people actually see these animals, you know, being struck and, and that's helpful for us to know as well. So this guy came in, we do a full physical exam. If they're stable enough to be sedated, I typically will sedate them for the exam and we use gas anesthesia for that. Um, if we want them completely out or we use something like midazolam just to get the edge off a little bit um, so that we can safely examine them both and, for their and, levels and for ours. Sorry, just for my listeners, midazolam, so that's gonna be a benzodiazepine. Um, and then um, what kind of anesthesia, is it like a fluorine? Yep, it's an isoflurane um, anesthesia machine. So it's you know very similar to what you would use in human medicine or small animal medicine. And, and if we need them to be totally out, which we do for a lot of these kind of exams, it's very invasive. These are very aggressive, angry birds. So if they're alert, they're gonna wanna you know, respond to us. And especially if they have fractures and things like that, we wanna keep them as still as possible. Um, so we'll definitely do the exams sedated or anesthetized to be able to do that. Um, we'll feel through all the bones. We'll look at the eyes, especially for raptors. If there's, you know, an eye doesn't work, then that animal can't be released. And owls are kind of the exception. Um, we can have owls that have one eye and are still able to be released in some situations. So they're kind of the odd one out. But in general with raptors, if one eye doesn't work, that animal doesn't work. So I like to check eyes does, first just to know that too. Does that have to do, because raptors rely a lot on um, visual perception with the depth perception and owls kind of use their hearing along with their eyes to hunt exactly, prey? yep. So owls more so than the other raptor species are gonna be using those offset ears. Um, their one ear is higher than the other ones. They're able to really triangulate prey in the, you know, in complete darkness effectively. So even without their vision, they, they need some level of vision. They have excellent vision. 
Um, but even without perfect binocular vision, they're still able to hunt successfully. So in cases where we have an owl, for example, with one eye that's damaged, it kind of depends on the level of damage in that eye. Um, if it's something that's you know, minor damage, usually not an issue at all. If the retina is totally detached, that animal's functioning, functionally blind. In those cases, we typically leave the eye in place just because the facial symmetry is also so important for these guys to be able to, to triangulate appropriately with their hearing. So if one eye is good and the other eye doesn't work, we're still gonna leave it in place. The only time we do eviscerations is if there's you know, chronic inflammation in the eye, something that we can't get under control pain-wise. And in those cases, we will sometimes um, do an evisceration, which is essentially like an enucleation. We're just not taking quite as much out. Oh, okay. <laughs> so that's kind of the, the solution in those cases um, to, to keep them comfortable and maintain as much facial, facial symmetry as possible so that they can triangulate when they hunt. Um, um, how about antibiotics? Do you guys give them any kind of prophylactic antibiotic, anything like that? So if they have a need for antibiotics, we give them, absolutely. Um, we are very One Health focused, and part of One Health is antimicrobial resistance and doing our part to prevent that. So we're you know, very judicious in our use of antibiotics here. There's certainly some drugs that we don't use at all. There's some that we use sometimes, and there's some that we use for different reasons, right? So um, luckily, these guys aren't food animals. They, the barred owl, for example, today. So I have more options with drugs, but keep in mind that most of the, the animals we treat as wildlife are considered minor food species. So oh. that really limits which antibiotics we can use. Um, and there are certain antibiotics that are never allowed to be used in food animals. So those are automatically off the list. And so think of things like, you know, waterfowl and turkeys and morning doves and crows even have hunting seasons. These are all technically food animals. Um, so that, that really does limit the antibiotics that we can use in those cases. And for the case today, for example, he ended up having um, a two-part radius fracture and a two-part ulna fracture that we did repair surgically this afternoon. So in those cases, it was an open fracture, bone was exposed. So we absolutely get those guys on antibiotics right away. Um, we placed a catheter as soon as he got in because he was kind of shocky. We gave him some fluids for a while, stabilized him um, so that we could go to surgery this afternoon with him. So that's kind of a typical situation with a hit by car raptor. They're often broken. Um, they're often open fractures. And unfortunately, especially with scavengers, um, they can live for a really long time without being able to fly, right? Things like vultures that, are, that can run around on the ground and find meat. If they're hit, they often stay out on the ground for days or weeks at a time before they're actually found mm. and weak enough to be brought in. And in those cases, there's really not much we can do. The bone, you know, bird fractures, if they're not brought in within about 24 hours, are oftentimes just not salvageable. They, yeah. they get dirty really quickly. They're obviously not holding that wing, protecting it and bandaging it themselves. So they do get dirty really quickly. The bone becomes necrotic and that bone will never heal again. So in those kind of cases, there's really not much we can do. But if they come in with nice fresh fractures or closed fractures, there's not too much contracture, then we, we go ahead and, and take them to surgery as soon as they're stable. And so what does the um, rehabilitation look like for these birds after like a surgery, after um, they've gotten medical care? Um, how long are they staying in your facility before they're released back? So birds are, are pretty awesome in that they heal really, really quickly, much faster than our, our mammals, much faster than our reptiles. So in some cases, uh, and take window strike birds, for example, a lot of these guys will get coracoid fractures. And that's one of the shoulder bones that, that we actually don't have, um, but it's what allows them to fly. So when they get coracoid fractures, there's really not a good surgical way to repair that. And so we just bandage it. And even with just bandaging in these songbirds, that bone can be stable in as little as 10 days, 
which is insane if you're comparing it to mammals or even worse reptiles. Wow. Um, so in 10 days, you know, we start doing physical therapy after about a week, um, which basically just involves anesthetizing them, taking that bandage off. Um, we stretch out everything, passive range of motion, and just try to get them, you know, get those joints to move functionally. Um, and then generally around 10 to 14 days, we'll take the bandage off entirely and they're able to exercise and build up strength again. Um, and then for some of the raptors or the, the surgical cases where there's actually pins involved. So we do a lot of external fixators, which it's basically like having pins that go perpendicular to your bones with a bar attaching the outside so that it can hold everything stable. And when we do those, we actually take them apart piece by piece. So we're not removing everything at once. We're basically taking off a little bit of pressure at a time. Usually about once a week, we'll cut one of the pins and that'll allow a little bit more pressure to go on the bone and it'll actually encourage healing to happen more quickly. And in those cases, the whole external fixture is generally removed by three and a half to four weeks. And then those guys can start using their wings again, flapping, flying small distances. We put them into small cages initially, and they have progressively larger cages that they use um, until they get to our, our flight ring, which is the biggest one we have. It's a, a 20 foot wide ring circle, basically, mm -hmm. um, kind of continuously fly in that. And, and generally, however long they're inside is how much time they need outside. So if they spend four weeks inside um, on cage rest and they get moved out at four weeks and they need about another four weeks outside to rebuild enough muscle to be able to be successfully released at that point. Wow. It's, it's incredible. The amount of, you know, work that goes into, <laughs> to rehabilitate them. That, that is amazing. Um, do you guys do like, uh, so I know you, you take them out and fly them while they're in the cages. Do they get any kind of like bird PT or anything like that? Is anyone like moving stuff on them or something, or are they mostly left alone? They're mostly left alone when they're in hospital caging. So we're kind of divided here. We have the hospital section is kind of our ICU area, if you will. Um, and then further out, we have caging specific rooms for different patients that are, you know, maybe on once a day meds, things like that. Generally, those guys are on cage rest. We don't want them flapping their wings. And when we do, we want it to be in a really controlled way. So birds that have fractures that are healing are generally anesthetized twice a week so that we can do physical therapy on them. Um, basically, we're able to hold you know, the fracture site in the joints and actually feel everything move and get good stretching on that. And that's ultimately what's going to allow them to be able to fly again, because if you just keep that wing bandaged, it's just going to contract and they're not going to be able to use it. So PT is incredibly important for birds. It, it really is what gets these guys back out. Doing surgery alone is definitely not enough. Um, and then when they're in those cages, we try to keep them in cages where they can't extend fully because we don't want them to be banging their wings around mm. and, and injuring themselves again. Um, and then the next step up is kind of these smaller cages, but they're about maybe 16 by 20. So they're not flying great distances. They're not building up enough force to, to hurt themselves if they, if they do something. At that point, the bone is healed effectively. So we don't you know, we have them outside, they're doing their own physical therapy, basically, they're stretching, they're, they're trying to move around on their own. And then when they move to the larger flight cages, they're really building up the muscle again. So we, we want to make sure that we kind of have control over that physical therapy process, because otherwise, these birds are just very high stressed. And if you put them in the wrong caging too soon, it's pretty easy for them to go ahead and break something on their own. Now, how about with like advancing their diet? What does it look like when they're, they first come in injured? You know, you either do surgery or uh, some kind of invasive procedure to help them. Um, what, what does it look like? What is their initial diet? And then when they get close to being released, what is their diet like? So it's, it's generally the same throughout, actually. When they, when they come in at first, 
we're, because we're planning to anesthetize them or planning to go to surgery, most of our birds aren't going to be eating that first day when they come in. NPO. Um, and, and that's okay. I think people freak out a lot about it. You know, they, they always say, you know, I, I have this bird in a box. What kind of food can I put in there so that it lives for transport? <laughs> and it, that always kind of makes us laugh, right? Because obviously if you're driving, even if it's an hour long drive, this bird with um, a massive open fracture is not concerned about eating. They're going to be just fine with that food. Um, especially raptors and stuff that can go days without eating in the wild, right? Um, they're not going to die from, from not having food today. It's okay. So we're certainly, you know, feeling body condition as soon as they come in. That's a routine part of our exam. And as long as they're in good body condition, we'll start feeding them the day after surgery, whole prey items, just like they're used to. Um, so there's really no change as long as they're in good condition. And if you think about why animals come in, the overwhelming majority of, of raptors that we get in are hit by car or lead um, and, or unknown trauma of some sort. So they're usually doing really well in life until they're not which means they come in in good body condition um, and they can generally eat again the next day. But of course, every once in a while, we get animals that are in for, you know, illness related reasons more so than injury. Mm. Those tend to be the ones that are thin or even emaciated. And that's a, a totally different protocol. Um, so with emaciated birds or really thin birds, we want to start refeeding them really slowly, just like humans, they can get what's called refeeding syndrome. And basically it means that you can kill them if you feed them too much you know, calorically dense food too quickly. If any of my med school friends are listening, the board exam, refeeding syndrome, <laughs> low phosphorus. There you go. You'll get that question right. <laughs> yep. And it's, it's, it's obviously all those metabolic changes, but also major organ changes. It can cause organ failure long-term. So definitely want to avoid refeeding syndrome. And we do that by kind of slowly reintroducing food. And we'll start out by feeding some of the critical care diets, they have specially formulated carnivore care diets and herbivore care diets. So you can kind of get something that's close enough to what you need for the short term. And we not only make that up as a liquid, but we also dilute it out initially because they really don't need that many calories um, when they're already emaciated. It's one of those situations where their metabolism is already shut down. So it actually doesn't take as much you know, caloric density as one thinks to keep them alive and maintaining at that point. So we kind of slowly increase um, that type of food initially, they'll have a couple feeds per day on the tube feeding diet, and then we'll thicken that up to make it a thicker diet. And then they'll start eating, you know, meat or soft pieces that can be things like pinky mice, things that are mostly cartilage and mm -hmm. don't have any real bone that they have to worry about or lots of fur they have to worry about. Um, and generally after about a week or so, they can start eating whole prey again. So diet definitely varies based on the condition they come in at. Awesome. Thanks for answering that. And um, I have to say, Dr. Dr. Riley, that phone ringing in the background, Dr. Riley is recording. She's still at work, working hard. She's in her scrubs right now. Um, so, you know, I'm just so thankful that she's taking the time to talk with me. Um, and I, I loved what you said about people, um, you know, calling, wanting to feed the birds, because I feel like that's everyone's first instinct. It's probably like, the motherly instinct in all of us, like you see an injured uh, bird or, uh, you know, your kid's sick, you just want to like give them some soup or something, how make them feel better. The problem is, of course, the skinnier an animal is, the more they want to feed it, which is obviously not what we're looking for medically. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, so uh, that, that was a great overlay of like from the moment a bird gets brought in to release about kind of the, the great care that you guys give them. Um, do any cases stick out to you as either like really strange or odd pathology, like journal worthy or something, or um, just really cool cases, cases that maybe made you feel real good, anything like that? Um, 
most cases make us feel pretty good, I guess, if they're successful, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> some of the things that, that I personally, I guess, really enjoy are um, basic wound care kind of things. So, you know, fractures are pretty straightforward. They're kind of, you get what you expect. So they're not typically the interesting cases to me. Um, but we've had some really cool cases where there's pretty massive wounds that we've been able to heal really well. And I, I'm a fan of using different kinds of toys to get these things done. So um, we had a, a red tail talk a while back that had basically its whole back was degloved and a lot of the tissue there was already dead. It was in really rough shape, filled with maggots. And, you know, after stabilizing it, we were like, what do we do with this wound? And, and we ended up having to try a couple different things. It did need surgery to debride some of that dead tissue. But after that, we ended up going um, with our, our wound vac, which is one of those things that we use a lot on turtles because it's easy on turtles, I guess. Um, but if you've ever used a wound vacuum on, on people, basically it's just negative pressure on this bandage so that you're, you're pulling you know, exudate and stuff away from the wound. Now, like, now when I see a patient in the hospital with a wound vac, I'm just going <laughs> to picture a turtle with a wound vac the and it's going to make it. the most <laughs> frequent wound vac patients here. Um, but it was, it's interesting <laughs> that you can kind of do it on anyone, including red tails. And we were able to get enough healthy tissue there. And, and then we ended up switching to honey bandages, which we do use quite a bit of honey also on turtles, but it works really well on birds, especially um, bigger birds. So this was a red tail talk, but we've also used it on Canada geese and things like that, um, where those wounds heal really nicely, um, just with, you know, honey and a tegaderm, a, a plastic kind of bandage over that to keep stuff out. And we change it every couple of days and they do really, really well. And they don't seem to mess with it too much. You can't get away with that in mammals because most mammals like sweet things and they'll go after the honey, but birds are, are pretty awesome about it. Um, so we've had cases like that that are, that are great. They're really good to kind of monitor wound progress. I like to take pictures every week and kind of you know, see the progress for myself. Um, Jessica and I also run our Facebook page. So we're always kind of looking for things to highlight for people and, in that way too. Um, and, and honey bandages and wound healing is definitely some of the fun stuff there. Um, trying to think of other cases that are interesting. Well, I was uh, kind of interested. Um, I know we've talked about like the trauma side a lot, but um, what about like the disease side? Um, what kind of, do you ever get a bird and you're not really sure what's wrong and you have to, you know, f run some tests? And um, I, I, I don't know about if, if birds can get Lyme disease or anything like that, but trying to figure out what kind of disease or pathological process. Yep, so we, we do see a lot of disease too. So because of you know, why people bring things in. Most of what we see is actually trauma. That's just kind of standard for wildlife rehab in general. Um, but we do often see diseases. And, and just as you said, it's usually that something's not right. We don't know exactly what this is um, for a lot of the diseases that we get. Things like, um, i trying to think of a good example, West Nile virus. These guys come in and it's typically the same species. So we have an idea, right, based on what species it is, what we're suspecting, what we're looking for. And that's how we do diagnostics. So when we get a raptor in or a corvid in, um, something that is one of those kind of classic West Nile species and it's ataxic, it's incoordinated, it's a little bit down and, and not quite able to stand up and, you know, those kind of classic signs, sometimes they even have tremors. Um, in those cases, one of the first things we're going to do is we're going to pull blood immediately and we're going to test in-house for lead because, you know, we want to rule that out first. Um, and then West right. Nile is probably the most common bird test that I send out at this point. We can't do that in house. So that's, that's one of those things that we do frequently for those guys and occasionally in species that you wouldn't think of. So last year, for example, we had a double crested cormorant, which are not one of those birds that are typically associated with West Nile. 
and we were kind of thinking through all these things that could have caused the neuroscience that we saw in him, things like botulism, um, obviously it could have been head trauma. So trauma is always a rule out for pretty much anything we see here. Um, even if you can't necessarily see broken bones or something, right? A lot of these guys, you find trauma, even on necropsy, you know, things like bruising on the skull that maybe you wouldn't have picked up during exam, but comes up later. Hmm. Um, but then things like West Nile come, come to the forefront again. So with him, we ended up testing for West Nile, for Tripoli, for a couple of the different encephalitis viruses. And we ended up finding out that he was West Nile positive, which was the first cormorant we had ever had that was West Nile positive. What was that disease you said? Vertripoli? Triple E, sorry. Uh, Eastern. Oh, oh, Eastern uh, equine encephalitis. Okay. Those are two of the, the big encephalitis cases that we, that we do see quite a bit of. Certainly avian influenza is a concern whenever we have um, specific signs in animals. And that's one of those potentially risking humans as well. So we definitely monitor for a lot of different diseases and we will send out diagnostics if we're, if we're unsure. Um, and also it varies by season right. too. So like West Nile, we typically see those cases in August and September. That's when 90% of those cases come in. So we're using, you know, the animal's clinical signs, but also the time of year, also how rainy has it been? You know, we kind of have all these different factors that are going to, to lead us to different diagnostics. And in wildlife medicine, more so than maybe companion animal where you have owners paying for things, um, the cost is really a big issue, right? We have to be able to justify every diagnostic we send out. And, you know, so much more often than in small animal, I find myself asking for one specific item. So like, I don't order a chemistry panel. I order the one thing that I need, and then maybe I'll add on a couple other things. Oh. So it ends up being, you know, there's what test do you want? And I could, I could probably spend a thousand dollars on diagnostics per patient if I wanted to, if I, you know, I have reason, valid reason to get all those tests, but that's just not something that's realistic. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously these birds don't have insurance, so. <laughs> so we, we often end up testing one thing at a time when we can, and luckily labs are, are really great about working with wildlife hospitals to, to allow us to do that. That's great. Uh, I picture you like Dr. House, or I guess Dr. Bird House uh, in your uh, <laughs> case, uh, just figuring out what's wrong with it. Uh, is it lupus? Oh, no, uh, it's a, uh, no, is it triple E? Uh, that's, that's so cool. Um, do you ever deal with like large parasite burdens in birds? Do you ever just empirically treat them for parasites How, or are they just part of the natural flora? How does that work? Yeah, so we, we do run fecals on a lot of our birds. And generally, if, if it's not, if they're not showing GI signs from it, if there's not a sign or, you know, lungworms, for example, if they're showing respiratory issues, but if they're not showing signs for that specific parasite, we're not usually going to treat it. Um, and that's just because these are, non-pathogenic, normal flora, things that they should be having in there anyway. We don't want to cause resistance by treating things unnecessarily, but certainly if they, if they have huge burdens, um, and a lot of times with things like hookworms where they're anemic because of it, or, you know, if they're having bad diarrhea because of it, cloacal prolapse because of it, then absolutely we want to treat those things and, and get that out of the system. Uh, and then what about like feather mites or something like that? Have you ever come across a bird that is infested if they're sick or is it usually a pretty low burden? So most of the birds that we get in, I'd say, have feather lice, um, lots of flat flies, lots of external parasites in general. And just that's because of why they come in. So if they're, if they're down, they're usually down for more than 24 hours a lot of times by the time we get them in. And those guys almost always have external parasites. That's just the norm. Um, so yeah, we're used to having feather lice crawl all over us. <laughs> it's part of the job. Um, and, and one of the questions I kind of had earlier, I want to go back. Can birds get Lyme disease and, and can they get ticks? 
Yes. So, well, Lyme disease, I can't say that I've ever diagnosed in a bird, but they certainly get ticks and they certainly get tick-borne diseases. Um, so that's definitely something worth monitoring. And we actually do quite a few research projects that are involving ticks. So that's part of our, our One Health goal is to, to be able to investigate different diseases that cause problems in both wild populations, human populations, domestics, things like that. So um, one of the studies that we're doing is looking for the Asian longhorn tick, which is an invasive tick that's in our area and probably all over by now, honestly. But we were actually the first center in North America to find a bird carrying that tick. What, what species was it? Uh, it was a red tail, a red tail talk from oh. County, Virginia. Um, and so the reason that they're, they're getting these ticks is usually because they're down, right? It's, they're much less likely to get it if they're flying around healthy, moving. Um, but when these guys are, are down, debilitated, they're more likely to get ticks. And then the really scary thing is, you know, we're worried about this ticks spread through the U.S. And now suddenly it has a flying host. So that makes it much more risky. Things like, you know, mammals, foxes, groundhogs, whatever, those guys are going to stay in a home range. They're not going to fly, you know, across the country. They're not going to be on a flyway traveling thousands of miles. So having a flying host definitely makes it more of a concern. Wow, that's so interesting because, um, I mean, obviously plants have just, uh, you know, utilize birds so much for spreading, uh, you know, you think of like uh, blueberries and, and blackberry bushes and, and then so many other plants, you know, have used birds because of their mobility to, uh, they rely on them to, to spread their seeds. And uh, man, I never considered about parasites being able to use birds as, as their vector. Um, that's that's really interesting. All of that stuff, they all use bird vectors too. Wow. Thanks for talking about those cases. That's uh, that's very interesting. It's it's incredible how much overlap there is uh, between, you know, animal and uh, and human. I mean, well, we are animals, um, but uh, the pathophysiology and uh, how much we can learn from each other with you know from treating humans for uh, with treating animals. Um, uh, I was wondering. Could you maybe, because uh, we've talked a lot about um, trauma in birds and with window strikes and car strikes, could you maybe talk about like the pathophysiology of that? You know, what, what happens when a bird strikes a window? What, what's, what's going on injury-wise? Um, like, are they getting a concussion? Like, what, what's happening? Yeah, so um, I can tell you that the, the advice has changed a little bit in recent years. It used to be we would tell people, if a bird struck your window, get it contained, let it rest for an hour or two, and then go ahead and try to release it. And if it doesn't fly off, then bring it in for care. Um, and since then, studies have come out showing that even when these birds are able to fly off, a lot of them have injuries that are going to kill them in the next 24 to 48 hours anyway. Um, so it's generally best if you have a bird strike the window and you can get it to a facility like ours, a, you know, a rehabber or a hospital, go ahead and do that. That's always going to be the better option. Um, and the reasoning for that is that they have a variety of injuries, but a lot of them are pretty predictable. So if we know that an, a bird struck a window and that's why it's here, that's going to immediately kind of change the, the things that I'm looking for on exam a little bit, right? So a lot of these guys will have bruising over their spines and um, generally right around the neck area. So a lot of them don't have leg use when they come in or they have, you know, deep pain, but they don't actually have motor in their legs, things like that. Um, a lot of them will have very obvious signs of head trauma. And a lot of that is actually brain bleeds. And we see that unfortunately on necropsy. So we do necropsy every bird that, that dies, you know, as 
as time allows basically to kind of figure out what's going on. And it's, it's pretty classic with a lot of the window strike cases is they hit either head first or chest first. Cause a lot of times they do know that the window is there, but they find out just a second too late. Mm. So they'll pull their head back and they'll kind of crash into it chest first. And that's why we get so many coracoid fractures um, with window strike cases because they're, they're literally slamming right on their chest. We also see a lot of keel fractures because of that. So that's the, the one common area, either the chest or the head is what's impacted. And the signs kind of correlate to that. So birds that have primarily head trauma often have torticollis. They have these really severe head tilts. Um, they might have tremors, uh, just a, a variety of things or anything that you would normally see associated with with severe brain swelling, basically it's a traumatic brain injury. And the other half have these chest wounds. So they might have a keel fracture or something like that, but then they're also- is, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, is the keel similar to the sternum? Yes, yes, sorry. So yeah, the keel is, is where those pectoral muscles attach. Um, and it's partially a pneumatic bone as well. So when they open that up and they're bleeding into those pneumatic bones, that can be problematic as well. Um, pneumatic means uh, air filled listeners. Yes. Um, and people think that all bones are pneumatic in birds, but that's definitely not true. It's the minority of, of bones, but it's some of the more important bones, I guess, um, that are pneumatic. So that can fill with blood. Um, their lungs certainly start breathing, you know, bleeding internally. And so these guys that come in as window strikes almost always need oxygen right away. So we actually have two oxygen cages right up front, kind of in our oh. treatment area when, we, when they come in, because especially this time of year during migration, we see a huge uptick in window strike cases and these guys need oxygen right away. So a lot of them will spend a day or two in oxygen and we can kind of slowly dial that oxygen down over time um, until they're able to come out. And that's, that's kind of the goal. That's what we want to see with these guys. We want them to resorb that blood and start breathing better on their own. And unfortunately, in some cases they don't. So if, if the bleeding was too severe, um, we will have patients that, that die because of that bleeding. And same thing with the head trauma, you know, we can give them things like mannitol to bring down swelling. We can, we can do certain things to help them. We can give anti-inflammatories. Um, but if brain bleeding continues, eventually that will likely kill these guys. So it's a combination of, you know, trying everything we can medically and supporting them as long as we can. Um, and either they get better or they don't in a lot of those cases. And that's kind of the, the main, the main issue that causes death in those situations. But beyond that, there's also a lot of a lot of fractures that we're treating for window strikes, um, a lot of corneal ulcers because of the way they, they hit their faces on the glass. Mm. Um, so there's plenty of other things too. And obviously the, the neurologic issues, if they have spinal trauma, um, a lot of these guys will start to improve over the first 24 hours. They might improve more over the next week or so, but it can take some of them months sometimes to, to fully regain function. Um, so the neurologic issues, the brain bleeds and the lungs, I guess are the, the big things with window strikes. Wow. Um, I didn't know about that, that even if it just hits it, then you should bring it in. Um, I have a, a story. I was studying outside at medical school and our medical school, you know, had these gigantic windows on the outside, um, which, you know, looked great, but, uh, you know, birds obviously um, would uh, strike them sometimes. And uh, one time I was studying and a male ruby-throated hummingbird um, struck a window right near me fell to the ground um, and I kind of went over and he was laying there. I could see him, you know, that rapid chest rise, they breathe so fast. Um, and I picked him up in my hands and kind of cupped him thinking maybe I would warm him and it would help. And then I felt him moving and opened up my hands and he, you know, zipped away. And I was like, oh, you know, I felt good. I was like, oh, he was probably just was a little concussed, but now I feel bad. That, 
Oh no. It's always good when you rescue them, right? And we always tell people too, if it flew off, you know, hopefully it's fine. Go ahead and assume that. Um, but certainly there are situations where they're not fine and, and you may not know right away whether they fly off or not. And, and sometimes people bring them in and they end up dying in care. And, and that's hard for a lot of people to, to grasp too. They, they think, well, I brought it in, you know, and, and so yeah. why wasn't it fixed? And, and unfortunately, we're, you know, we're not miracle workers. We don't have unlimited staffing and budgets and, and not every patient will live. Um, but we certainly make them as comfortable as possible. And we try everything that's reasonable to get them back out. Um, and, and what are some ways that uh, easy ways to prevent window strikes? So at the center, we actually use the, the cheapest, most effective method that I can think of, which is dry erase markers. Um, we just have, you know, checkerboard kind of patterns on our windows with dry erase markers um, that we can erase anytime if we decide that we, we don't want them on there, we want to do a different pattern. But the important thing is whatever you do put on your windows, you want to make sure that it's less than two inches apart. I see a lot of people using these, these big decals, which can be really useful. They're, they're nice, but they really have to be less than two inches apart. So you need a lot of decals to cover a picture window. Putting up one or two on a window really isn't sufficient because these birds are looking for where they can fit through. They see that as you know, a pathway between decals that they could fly through. And if they can you know, flap their wings at the right motion and be able to, to sneak their body through it, they're going to do that. So it really needs to be a small amount of clear space between decals. And that's why we think that the dry erase markers work really well for us. People also use window tape. Um, there's other kinds of you know, window markings you can use. There's mesh kind of screens that you can use. So kind of like the normal screens people would have oh. from something like that, that you can put outside your window and that, that provides a little bit of a buffer. So if things do hit it, there's a little bit of air between, kind of like having a little airbag. Um, it provides a little bit more um, of that airbag qualities to prevent severe trauma. Um, wow. So there's a couple of different things you can do. It's certainly closing windows. People like to keep shades open all day, but if you're not in the room, just close it. That's a huge way to, to help prevent window strikes. It's just not always the most convenient, I guess. People don't want to think about opening and closing their, their screens and their, their curtains all the time, but that really is a huge help. And that's energy efficiency too. So, you know, save money, save birds. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, that's, that's great. Um, I also, it, and then, uh, so we talked about window strikes. I kind of want to talk about um, car strikes a little bit. And um, I'll also tell a little story um, I have here too. Um, I was driving over Cheap Mountain in West Virginia and um, it's, you know, windy mountain roads, you know, with, like like 16 degree like steep um uh roads and um i come around a turn and there is a hawk in the middle of the road and um you know i immediately know something's wrong i, I pull off and i'm just worried that another car is going to come and hit it so um i pull over i get out of my car um and it's actually funny because my fiance was following me and uh, she, but she was a little bit behind because uh i'm a little bit uh on the mountain roads i you know i'm like uh, I don't know, the Dukes of Hazard on there. I'm, I'm going uh, fast and she, she's taking her time playing it safe anyway. But, um, I get out of my car, um, and the Hawk is not respond. Like he's, he's standing up, he's, he's looking around, but he's just not responding to me walking up to him. So I take off my shirt and I kind of use it to, um, grab his talons and pick him up and just move him to the side. But my, I hear a car coming. I know it's my fiance. I'm in the middle of the road around a turn on a mountain road. So I, I'm like waving my arms and she comes around and I, I see she her. she was driving slow, huh? <laughs> yes. I see her face and she's just like, Oh my God, what is he doing? Um, but, uh, I, I, you know, move him off to the side and, um, uh, 
you know, just, just, just kind of moved them off. And, uh, I had no cell service and, um, uh, I, I, in retrospect, I guess I should have tried to take him to a uh, center. I was a little afraid of putting him in the car. Um, you know, if he would start tearing things up or attack me. Um, but, uh, he, I, I remember giving him a quick check over, um, checking his wings, um, checking his legs, um, looking in his eyes. I even did, you know, I did like a neuro exam on him with pupillary, um, dilation and stuff. And, uh, everything was stone cold normal, but he was just acting strange. He was, you know, he would kind of give me a like rear, like, and open his mouth and kind of hiss at me a bit, but was just acting sluggish. Um, and so I was like, is he concussed? What's going on? Um, I don't know. Can you give some insight into what happens if a, a bird hits a car? Yeah. So it's actually really similar to a window strike, except a bigger bird, right? And more force probably because you have a car coming at you. Um, but it's, it's really similar injuries. We're just typically seeing them in bigger birds because usually when songbirds get hit, a lot of them do die right away. Um, the ones that come in are pretty severely injured, but we've also had, you know, raptors that come in hit by car, which is one of the most common diagnoses we have for raptors. And you don't know if it's purely head trauma. A lot of it is just going to be head trauma the same way that it is with window strike songbirds. Um, but a lot of it is also going to be that lung damage. A lot of it could be eye damage. So even when PLRs are intact, even when they, they look normal externally, we always have to check the retinas on these birds because things, things tear that you can't readily see. Um, certainly they get coracoid fractures that you can't actually feel. So, you know, I'll see like pictures of people trying to feel wings and, and the coracoids you really can't feel during a normal exam like that. You really have to kind of go into the theome, into the body cavity with your hands to feel even the tops of them. So a lot of times just based on how, how they're holding their wings, we can kind of tell that it's very likely a coracoid fracture. And then we get a radiograph and confirm that. So there could have been fractures, things like that. There could have been head trauma and problems associated with that. A huge percentage of our hit by car raptors also have lead. So that's always a possible reason why they might not be mentally appropriate. Um, yeah. And that's, that's one of those things that I, even though we don't have a lot of primary lead toxicity cases, that's a low percentage of what we see. So many of our hit by car raptors have low levels of lead. So by low, I mean like three to 10 micrograms per deciliter of lead, which isn't considered the toxic levels that we, we start seeing clinical signs from, but it's severe enough that it might make you a little bit drunk and now you're wandering in the street and now you get hit. Yeah, as we learn in medical school, there's no safe level of lead. <laughs> exactly, and, and as people know from driving, there's no safe level of drinking when you're driving, right? So it's, yep. it's kind of the same type thing. These guys are, are drunk on lead and they're wandering in the streets making bad choices. So a lot of times those things go together. So certainly it could have been head trauma, it could have been other types of injuries, it could have been potentially a blindness issue, concussions, um, lots of different things can happen. You know, it's just, it's basically one type of trauma. So it's one cause of trauma, but there's so many different types of trauma within that. Well, um, I really hope the best for him. I didn't move him to a safe spot. I, I After talking with you guys, I realize now you know, I should have brought him to a, um, a center. And in the future, I will, I will certainly do that. Um, that's, that's one of the reasons why I'm so uh, thankful for interviewing you guys, because, you know, not only am I learning, I'm able to kind of put this on a platform to also teach other people. And um, I hope people are listening. And I hope people are learning, uh, too. <laughs> and, and the advice that we always give when people are in that situation, because that's the problem, like, you don't know what to do when it actually happens. So save those phone numbers in your phone, like you were saying, you didn't have service. So that's, that's a little bit more tricky. But always save the, the numbers of local wildlife centers, apps like Animal Help Now that, that can help you locate rehabbers in different areas. 
Um, things like that are really important because basically if you see that and it's in the road and you're able to scoot it off the road, the best thing to do is to park right there and call somebody immediately. Oh. And, and that way you can kind of figure out what you need to do, where it needs to go. Um, if you can't grab it, because we certainly don't recommend anybody who's not trained try to grab a raptor because even when they're really down, these guys can be very dangerous. Talons can be a lot <laughs> to deal mm-hmm. with. Um, and they're certainly not clean either. So if you have a towel or a jacket or something else that you can kind of throw over the bird to at least incapacitate it a little bit further so that it's not going to be able to run off and run away from you, um, that's a good option too. So you can call somebody, you know, and discuss the situation with that bird not able to to quickly escape. Um, So those are kind of the common things that we tell people. It's always nice to have things like a folded cardboard box in your car that can be popped up and ready when needed. Um, Things like welding gloves, the, the leather gloves that we usually use for raptors are nice to have in your car for a variety of species. So we all kind of have basic go kits in our car of, of how we, you know, could be able to respond to a lot of these things that happen. Um, even though we don't want to have a huge crate in our car, for example, there's, there's other ways to get around that a little bit. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, and I'll have to, um, uh, send you a picture because uh, I was never able to ID this bird. Um, uh, he was huge, but um, he had these bright blue eyes, and I have read that immature hawks have those eyes, so I'm, I'm not sure. But um, uh, yeah, uh, I feel a little bit better knowing that maybe I moved him to a safer spot, but um, oh my gosh, that poor Certainly guy. Better to be out of the road regardless. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, um, okay, so. Uh, you know, thanks for talking through, uh, through that. And, uh, also something, um, you know, I would know I was making a joke about me driving like the Dukes of Hazards, but also just driving slow and, you know, just driving the speed limit, taking your time is such a, a big thing for protecting all wildlife. Um, you know, deer, raccoons, uh, and especially these birds, just if, you know, you're going a little slower, you got a little bit more reaction time. Absolutely. And, and just not driving when you don't need to. I noticed that this year, um, compared to previous years, we've had less hit by car, not only birds, but turtles um, and other things that commonly get hit. And the assumption is that with people driving less during COVID, people working from home more, we're just having less cars in the road. And, and with less cars in the road means less animals getting hit. So that's been kind of one of the, the silver linings of COVID-19 for us here. <laughs> yeah, I, I, um, I did a little, uh, at the very beginning of the pandemic, I did a little podcast where I was sitting in my backyard, just at my bird feeder kind of musing. And I was just wondering, I was like, well, there's less people driving. So there's going to be less roadkill, which is good. But also I wonder if the crows are going to start stealing more eggs because there's less (laughs) roadkill to eat, you know, just all these uh, intricacies. Um, And it's it's very interesting to think about someone's doing a paper on it somewhere. (laughs) Yeah, they are. And, and it's interesting that you mentioned bird feeding too, because that's been one of the other um, COVID-19 kind of related things we've seen this year um, is a huge increase in feeder diseases. And we've seen that a lot of people have started feeding birds for the first time this year. There's a huge kind of boom in the backyard birding industry right now because people are home and watching. And unfortunately, with that comes people, you know, that are new to feeding birds and don't necessarily know some of the problems associated with feeders. And that results in us getting more of these, what we call feeder disease cases, um, can can you please talk more about that? How to do a, a safe feeder? Um, what, what some of the diseases you see, that kind of stuff? Yeah. So the most common thing that we see is mycoplasmosis and finches. It's the, the, eye, the finch eye disease, people call it. Um, and that's when you see these finches at your feeder. It can be house finches, gold finches we get a lot of as well. And we've had, I think, four times more this year than we had any previous year. So definitely been a huge problem this year. And it basically causes a really severe conjunctivitis. Their eyes will actually crust over. 
and then these birds are functionally blind and that leads to you know predator attacks cat attacks things like that um, that they'd otherwise be able to prevent so that's the, the biggest issue we see feeder disease wise but also things like salmonellosis you know things that are fecal oral if you have a platform feeder or any kind of feeder where they have to stand on it um, those fecal oral diseases are going to spread really quickly things like trichomoniasis, um, lots of the parasites that are fecal oral tend to be problematic in that way. And even things like fungal um, issues that can stay on the feeder or if you have you know, mold and mildew getting in, if you have a feeder that can't really keep the seed dry, that can be problematic too. So the best way to prevent all those diseases is just to have a really clean you know, feeder and keep a regular schedule about cleaning it. So we generally recommend cleaning your feeder at least once or twice um, you know, ideally every week, but ideally, you know, people don't really do that. So if you can do it as often as possible, that's what we recommend every week, every two weeks. Um, certainly every time you empty it, absolutely you want to clean it. And so cleaning is basically just taking everything out of your feeder, scrubbing it down, soap and water, bleach it, rinse it, let it dry fully before you refill it. Don't put old seed back in it. People do that too. Um, only put out as much seed as you think your birds can go through in a week. And that way it'll remind you that you need to clean it more quickly. Um, and the different types of feeders, you always want to make sure that you have a non-porous feeder. So wood feeders are really hard to clean. You can't really clean wood. It's not one of those materials that disinfects well. Um, so we, we do recommend people avoid the wood feeders. The tube feeders are why a lot of the finches get this disease because they're sticking their whole head in mm -hmm. and they're rubbing their eyes on, on the feeder. And then the next bird comes in and rubs their eyes on it. Um, so it's basic kind of disease spread risk like you would think of for humans, but just keep those things in mind when you're feeding birds. You know, if you wouldn't lick a plate and then have a stranger lick the plate, you know, don't do that to birds either. Yeah, birds can't wash their hands. So, I mean, you gotta, you gotta wash the feeder for them, so. Even the bird baths. So when they do get clean, they, they have the same issue. Yep. <laughs> um, uh, great, and uh, I, you know, I, I definitely try to do that with uh, my feeders um, and, and everyone like, please do that with yours. Um, it's, it's so great to feed birds, but we don't want to be hurting them by, by feeding them. Um, uh, and uh, just, I think we've touched on a lot of these topics, but um, do you mind talking about uh, your role with One Health and kind of what One Health does? Yeah, so One Health is, is basically the idea that human, environmental, um, wild animal, domestic animal health, all of that stuff is, is intertwined. And we see that so much more now than we have in the past few years with COVID-19. I think a lot of people are getting a better understanding of One Health and zoonotic spillover and, and all these kind of things that we, that we think of causing pandemics. And I really see wildlife hospitals as being an important part of that One Health team. You know, we need to focus more on prevention and surveillance and things like that than just the response. And right now it seems like a lot of, a lot of what we do in pandemic situations is just response. We're not able to prevent things or to see them coming enough. And that's one of those areas where I feel like wildlife hospitals really do um, a bulk of the work for people and more so than is recognized. I think a lot of people associate us with fixing individual animals, you know, animals that were injured, we treat them, we release them. And that's kind of what people think about when they think of wildlife hospitals. Um, but that really isn't the more important work that we do. I really think the One Health work is so much more important. And so we are involved in a lot of different studies here at the center. And a lot of that is is disease surveillance. So for example, in raptors, we're working with Virginia Tech on a, a study to look for St. Louis encephalitis virus. And it's something that birds carry um, and can be a reservoir for. So we're basically just pulling their blood for these asymptomatic birds to see who has it and how prevalent is it. And we do a variety of different 
different things like that. We also have um, multiple tick studies with Virginia Tech where we're collecting both ticks and CRM from these animals to, to see the prevalence of a variety of tick-borne diseases. So there's lots of those kind of things that by knowing what the prevalence is in Virginia, we kind of know what the risk is for humans and we can kind of work with other One Health professionals, people um, like the health department, you know, people who are involved in epidemiology and public health and kind of give them an idea of what we're seeing. Um, and West Nile is another good example of one that when we see a lot of cases, we then report that and we notice that human cases and, and animal cases overlap. When one is high, the other is high. And so it's kind of important that all health professionals are really working together to share that information. Otherwise, you know, we're not all benefiting from it. We're ending up spending more than we need to to get the same data. Wow, um, that's that's great work, and it's it's so interesting. I would love some. I hope in the future, I was talking with Jess about this, that we can do more stuff together. And I would love to do a whole episode with you just talking about like bird human, you know, diseases that overlap because. Uh, you know, there's so much stuff in it, and they're really interesting too. And and how like you know, bird fanciers long and histoplasmos and, and like all that kind of stuff. Yeah, there's so much overlap, not just between humans and birds, but all the species. You know, toxoplasmosis is another one that we see in literally every species that we treat. It's something humans get. It's something birds get. Mammals get. Um, there's there's all these kind of diseases that overlap so much and yet when you look at the research it's it's always people focused on on one species it's either them looking at it in humans or, or them looking at it you know in, in whatever animal but it's really something that affects everyone it's, it's more of a general issue it, it's so cool i i just love this uh you know overlap um i i mean just the interconnection between between nature and um it's so much fun talking with you because you're this expert on animal medicine and i'm you know trying to become an expert in human medicine and just the similarities but also the subtle differences it's 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 really fun um uh as we kind of wrap up here um I would, I have a couple questions for you. And one of them is, um, in your experience, are there some birds that are just easier to treat or that heal better or that, you know, if they roll through the door with an injury, you're almost like excited to treat them because you know, there's going to be a good outcome. Absolutely. So I think a lot of it has to do with stress and certainly any wild animal that comes into care. We have to remember this is the most stressful time in their entire life. They are not happy to be here. They're extremely anxious just being around humans, never mind the actual pain they're in from their injuries. Um, so animals that tend to be higher stress tend to do worse. Um, and we need to mitigate that as best we can. So we do lots of things to minimize stress here. Um, things like keeping rooms dark, keeping covers over cages so they don't see humans, keeping noisemakers on, um, things like white noise machines and ocean machines that drown out any human noise that we have in the background, um, not talking around patients, things like that. But also for certain patients, and, and as you were saying, it's specific species, there's some species that always need to be on a benzodiazepam when they're here. They need to be on midazolam or, or diazepam while they're in care, or they won't eat. They won't you know, behave normally. And when those things happen, they can't heal. They become so stressed that it actually becomes immunocompromising. They'll develop things like aspergillosis, fungal infections. Um, a lot of these opportunistic things that get them in care are happening because of stress. So it's, it's super important that we do what we can to limit that. Um, one of the species I guess I think of most commonly would be a loon, common loons, extremely mm. high stress. Those guys, we pretty much always have on diazepam and on itraconazole and antifungal to prevent aspergillosis while they're in care. Um, so there's, there's certain things like that that we're treating automatically, basically, because of the species that we're working with. And it certainly does impact their, their ability to survive and care long term, 
Whereas something like a red-tailed hawk tends to be one of the more chill raptors. They're not going to, you know, put up too much of a fight for most things. And, <laughs> and those guys tend to do really well. I, I can't think of a single red tail I've ever needed to put on diazepam while they're in care. And they tend to heal really well because of that. And um, same thing with like brown pelicans. They, they're so used to seeing humans, which oh. is often why they come into care. So we don't really see them here. But when I worked in Florida, we saw a lot of them. And it was almost always, you know, a fishing line or hook related injury. Their injuries are always because they're close to people. But it also means that they're more comfortable around people. They have less stress because of it. And they tend to do better in certain situations because of that. So definitely, definitely different um, behaviors between different species that make rehab easier or more difficult. Gotcha. Um, and how about with songbirds? Like I picture like a tufted titmouse being pretty chill and like, I don't know, a Carolina wren being just very high strong. <laughs> Um, that's yeah. So, so Carolina wrens definitely are bouncing off the walls all the time. Um, but luckily they also are typically living right next to humans. They're one of the more common birds that we see living right up on houses in people's, you know, boots and baskets and things like that. So they're actually fairly used to seeing people and they don't seem to be as high stress, even though they're high activity level, I guess, mm. is the way to, to think of it. So the birds that are, are more deep woods type birds, songbird wise, are going to be the ones that are, are less used to seeing humans or more stressed by that. Uh, so something like a hermit thrush, like it is just going to yeah. freak out. So they're not going to be as active and, and look as crazy as the wrens who are constantly bouncing off the walls, but they're going to be stressed by it nonetheless. So we have to remember that stress doesn't always look the same in every species. Some animals freak out because of stress and others get really quiet. And I would say thrushes are often those really quiet ones that just kind of hunker down and panic silently. <laughs> just in their head. They're just, I'm freaking out, man. <laughs> That's what I imagine is going on in there at least. <laughs> ospreys. Ospreys are very high stress, but they, they show you that by basically just falling over. You put them in a cage and they just collapse. Oh, and, no way. <laughs> and so there, there are certain species that, you know, you can't say that stress looks the same in every animal for sure. Oh my gosh. That's, that's so interesting. Um, and, uh, kind of in our last few minutes here, I, I would really love to hear kind of, uh, since you know, these animal bodies, um, in, inside and out, um, what are some of your favorite kind of facts about bird bodies? Just the things you find amazing, the, the crazy evolutionary adaptations. Um, everything really birds are awesome. So certainly their respiratory system is amazing and insane. And if you think about, you know, the differences between, I like to compare a lot, a lot of what we do is comparative anatomy. So if you're looking at a mammal and a reptile and a bird, and you're looking at how those animals breathe and how they, how they pump their blood even, you know, think about reptiles that have a three-chambered heart that are having some mixing of oxygenated and deoxygenated blood versus, you know, these birds that I like to say they inhale as they exhale. They constantly have oxygen exchange mm -hmm. going. There's, unlike humans where we breathe in, we exchange oxygen, we breathe it out. It just seems so lame and pathetic to me when you think about birds that are just constantly <laughs> exchanging. It's just amazing um, how they're able to do those things. And, and that's how they're really able to fly is by having that, that metabolic ability, also by having wings and pneumatic bones and things like that, but also by having the respiration to, to support it. So yep. um, in our uh, listeners, check out our bird bods episode. Um, I talk about the respiratory system and yet kind of the classic example is humans are like uh, bellows, you know, those things you use to like inflate a fire. Like it's just breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out. Whereas <laughs> birds are like a conveyor belt. It's just like constantly going on. That's a great way to describe it. Yeah. 
Um, and also the other things that, that make them lightweight, things like I like to point out when we're doing necropsies and stuff, we're, we're also a teaching hospital. So we have students here constantly. Oh. Um, so veterinary students are, are often doing their rotations and stuff here. We have a lot of, you know, undergraduate students who are interested in rehab who do summer internships, things like that. So whenever we're doing a necropsy, I'm always, you know, I always want to bring everybody in to kind of highlight all the really cool things that birds do. And one of them is I'll point out gonads and I'll say, is this a male or a female? And obviously during breeding season, it's pretty, pretty easy to tell yeah. what everybody looks like versus <laughs> But the interesting thing is I'll usually point to either one thing or two things. And in the case of females, they generally only have the left side of their tract developed. So males will have two testes, but you'll only see one ovary. So things like that are, are fun to kind of point out to, to students who maybe don't, don't think about those things or don't recognize those things. Um, what else is fun about them? I always like to point out eyes. So especially on things like owls, where the actual eye is not what you're seeing. It's not a spherical eye. It's a tubular eye. And the part that you see up front is actually the smaller part of it. So for owls that have these huge eyes, people are mesmerized by these huge owl eyes. And the part that you're looking at is actually the small bit of it. The, the bigger part is actually in the back. And it's really obvious on radiographs or on necropsy when you can actually see the back of that eye. It's kind of the huge circular portion. There's a bony ossicle that goes around the waist tubular portion of it. And then it's huge in the back. So you kind of you can kind of appreciate these differences, you know, on necropsy or on radiograph when you, you couldn't necessarily do that in real life. Um, so lots of those kind of little things that we see in birds, cloacas and how they work, I think is always intriguing to people since humans don't have. Oh yeah. The, the hole that does three things at once. Life. Yeah. <laughs> very convenient. They're very well-designed animals compared to humans, in my opinion. Um, they just, they make more sense. They're, they're better built than us. <laughs> it's yeah, it's, it's so cool. Um, and, uh, you know, you definitely see the dinosaur and um, when you're, when you're looking at them, um, uh, I, I love it. Um, do you ever encounter any, um, I, I know when I did my Cardinal episode, the name of it escapes me, but, uh, sometimes they'll exhibit, uh, they also uh, obviously exhibit like leucism, which a, a lot of birds, um, will have, but, uh, uh, Cardinals more than most apparently will have this thing where it's a developmental, um, when the, the germ, the like, um, germ cell, when it's just, you know, those four cells, uh, dividing in the egg, uh, will, um, the chromosomes will split wrong and half literally split down the middle of the cardinal. Half of it will be male. Half of it will be female. It'll have testes on one side and ovary on one side. Um, I forget the name of it, uh, but it was like one of the most, I was like, I didn't even know this was real. This sounds like sci-fi. They had one in um, a rose-breasted grosbeak recently that was all over the internet. And it, it's just, it's always ridiculous looking when it's those really sexually dimorphic species. Cause obviously most, you know, most birds are not sexually dimorphic. So this could be happening all the time. We just don't see it. Um, but it's obviously more, it's more obvious in these species that are sexually dimorphic. Wow. It's, it's incredible. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I love the, you know, I love their normal bodies too, but the pathology they display too is, is just incredible. And it's the different chromosomes. And so for, for birds, for example, you know, or in humans, the, the ones with the X and the Y are the male, but the two X's are female and it's kind of the, the opposite in birds, ZZ mm -hmm. uh, or ZW and those guys, but ZW are the female. So there's, genetics are still you know similar to what they are in humans but there's also these interesting little differences that we get in birds so cool um are there any like uh i don't know for lack of a better term old wives tales about like um 
you know, bird bodies or anything. Cause you hear the classic thing, like, uh, like birds are cold blooded and like stuff like that. Are, are there any just facts you hear that you're like that? That is not true. Huh. I'm trying to think of, I mean, obviously like that, you, if you touch a baby bird, mom won't come back for it. Those kind of things are the, the most common that we, that we see as a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll say, you know, I picked up this bird. Now mom will never come back for it. And we have to remind them that that's not reality. Um, I can't I mean, think of any things that people think about birds, but maybe I'm, I'm just not hearing them. I don't know. <laughs> um, one of them I also hear too is, you know, it's always the male bird singing. And of course that's, that's not true. Um, the, the females like to use their singing voice too. For sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just didn't know if there was some you had encountered uh, with if people coming, you know, bringing you guys birds and, you know, saying some fact and you're like, eh, no. You get a lot of people who are afraid that like hawks are going to eat their dogs or children, things like that, that don't really happen. And have to remind people of, you know, how much weight these birds can actually pick up and carry. Um, <laughs> but that's, that's the only kind of thing I can really think of. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, well, uh, this has been such a fun interview. Um, it's definitely been the nerdiest dirty bird so far. Um, we were throwing out a lot of jargon. I hope that people that are non-medical or anything, um, you know, were able to, to keep up with that, but it was also just so interesting hearing about the, you know, the process, the patient care, um, you know, it really reminded me of a patient coming in, you know, to the ER and then, you know, they get admitted into the hospital and then maybe they go to the surgical floor and then they do rehab. And then, you know, finally they get to go home and it's like, you're the one doing all of those specialties at once, um, which, which is really It does make medicine much more convenient to be an all-in-one kind of facility. It helps us out. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to call in a consult or anything. Exactly. So. No referrals. It's a very simple process. No no payments, no insurance. It really simplifies everything. <laughs> oh, yeah. that's. Oh, I didn't ask about that. Yeah, do, do, um, do the birds ever get pain medicine or anything, or are they just good at tolerating pain? Oh, no. We, we are very big on, on pain medications here. So um, obviously, there's certain ways to tell if birds are painful or not, and we, we do kind of monitor signs of pain as best we can. But if anything is painful for a human, it's painful for a bird as well. So things like fractures are always going to get an opioid and NSAID. Um, We also do things behaviorally to keep them more comfortable. So like we're going to keep their food close to them if they're, you know, still in pain because we don't want them having to go search a cage for it. So things like enrichment and foraging is saved for when they're, they're not in excruciating pain. Um, Even things like bandaging, bandaging, uh, things to keep them stable is going to make it a lot less painful. So on top of actual pain medications, um, we're doing things to keep them as pain-free as possible while they're in care. Well, um, that is awesome. And, you know, thank you so much for the work you're doing. Um, thank you so much for stopping by on my little podcast here. Um, I, I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having us. It's been fun. Yeah, definitely. Um, and everyone out there, I hope, I hope you enjoyed that. Um, uh, definitely follow um, Blue Ridge uh, Wildlife Center on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, everything. They do some amazing work. Um, You'll see some of Dr. Jen Riley's work directly. They'll, you know, post a bird that came in with a broken wing or something. They'll show the x-rays and then show its its progress later on. So it's, it's so cool seeing that continuity of care and seeing um, some of the su- success and they don't shy away from some of the, the bad outcomes also. They, they show it all. Yeah, we always try to make a point to, to show a balanced view and so that things don't always go the way you want them to. Yeah, it's not all sunshine and rainbows, but, uh, 
but um, you guys are certainly putting a little bit more light out there in the, in the world, at least for these animals. Thank you. Um, well, thanks for listening, you guys. And as always, stay dirty, my birdies. Dirty Bird Podcast is brought to you by me, John, with our rotating panel of guests and co-hosts. Thanks for being on the show, guys. I really appreciate it. Our intro music is by Ricky Pistone, a.k.a. Dick Piston. And our outro music is by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music. And also, check out our theme song music video on YouTube. Our cover art is done by my beautiful fiancé, Lauren. Thanks for listening. Send any listener mail to dirtybirdpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram.